This is the very first Punitive Observer podcast, although we've done little bits of audio recordings before and posted Steve's recordings. So the Impunity Observer is at impunityobserver.com and observe impunity on Twitter. I'm the managing editor, Fergus Hodgson. And with me, we have our editor at large and founder, Steve Hecht. We, do, we publish so much content every month, commentaries, memos, investigations, got a lot going on. And so my pitch to Steve was that we should really get this into video. So many people prefer YouTube or other video platforms and audio, and we can give the content in that medium. So Steve, I'm honored to work with you. You know, we've, we've worked together so many years now. You're a dear friend of mine. Why don't you tell people what motivated you? You've lived in Guatemala almost 50 years, right? And I actually should just say, Impunity Observer is devoted to positive relations between the United States and Latin America, especially with a focus on Guatemala and Central America. And so Steve has lived in, in Guatemala almost 50 years. You could hardly get a man more informed, but Steve, you've been a businessman. Why did you want to venture into the media commentary writing world? I'll be happy to answer that, Fergus. But first, let me say that you make it possible. If I didn't have your significant abilities in terms of editing and organizing and, and uh, videos and the whole package, I wouldn't be able to do this. So I'm very appreciative and I'm very happy you made this pitch and I'm glad that we're starting the uh, Impunity Observer podcast. Now, about mm, 10 years ago, I started to notice some very strange things happening by the United States government in Guatemala. And it motivated me to write about it because what I saw was a level of criminality that astounded me. It was inconsistent with what I was taught about the United States and what it should stand for. And I decided that I wanted to begin to write. And I had a writing partner, David Landau, who is one of our editors at the Beauty Observer. And he's been a professional writer uh, since uh, the early 1970s. And I decided that I wanted to inform my fellow American citizens about what our government was doing in Guatemala. I thought they had the right to know. Uh, U.S. media hardly informs. And I thought I would uh, try to do that. And I managed to get in uh, various publications. It was very difficult. And um, eventually... I decided that the only way that I could really communicate my message was to establish my own website. And that was the reason for founding the Impunity Observer. And uh, I've made trips to Washington and I've talked to uh, uh, congressional offices and uh, I've developed, uh, as you know, a following in, in Washington. It's not large, but it's people specifically interested in Guatemala. And that has grown and I hope it grows some more. And uh, at the same time, I was able to inform Guatemalans about uh, what the U.S. State Department does and the U.S. government. And, uh, you know, even most Americans have a distorted view of what the State Department is. If they knew the truth, I think that there would be a lot of pressure for it to change. Uh, but uh, Guatemalans understand a lot better because they can see the impositions that the State Department makes on them. And, and so I'm really performing a dual service. I'm informing Guatemalans about the U.S. and I'm informing the U.S. audience about what its government does in Guatemala. 
And I think that that's a necessary uh, thing to do. And I'm glad I'm doing it. And uh, hopefully uh, it'll produce some good results and some informed people. Yeah. So as I, I tend to agree with you, Steve, that there is a disconnect between what appears in U.S. media and what actually goes on, happens on the ground in Guatemala. And I should just say that I lived a couple of years in Guatemala. So more familiar, uh, not only in reporting on it, but living there like Steve has done for a long time. So that's one of the key problems. One is that there is really a misrepresentation in the media or an over, both misrepresentation and overlooking. Because even in the United States, I'm, I'm in Colorado right now, we, we hear a lot of reporting on immigration challenges at the border, but so little examination of where these people come from and what is going on there. It's almost like people don't want to connect the dots. Yes, that's, that's true, Ferguson. And my, as you know, my uh, involvement in U.S. media on TV and, and uh, radio uh, has been really based on what you just mentioned, especially this year. And I hate to say it, although, you know, it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm praising myself, but I saw this coming. What's happening in the United States now, I saw it coming years ago because I saw the astounding level of criminality that the Obama administration and the State Department uh, were, were engaged in in Guatemala. And it's Orwellian because they, they have these boilerplate uh, descriptions of what they're doing, rule of law, transparency, it's all lie. What they're doing is uh, imposing in a criminal manner their political agenda, which is basically totalitarians, the successors of the Fidel Castro supported guerrillas. And I find that frankly offensive. And, and I don't think the United States people would approve, but uh, how do they know? Well, that's one of the reasons I do what I do, because it frustrates me that they don't know, and I want to tell them. And as far as immigration is concerned, I mean, look, as you, as you noted, I do business in Guatemala. I went there to do business, and I've been involved in development programs. Guatemala is a very rich country. It's got tremendous resources, and it's grown and it's progressed in spite of, of, of all the obstacles, if Guatemala had decent management, and it's never had decent management, it's always been poorly organized. If Guatemala had a, a government, limited government, with uh, it, it's based on individualism as it is, but if it were actually executed that way, with a competent and, and, and well-oriented government, Guatemala could be a model for development. And that's precisely why socialists or communists or totalitarians, whatever you want to call them, people who are anti-liberty, that want to impose a minority agenda on the majority of people, they understand that Guatemala has this potential. And if you know the history of the, uh, of, of the internal armed conflict, you know, from 1960, supposedly to 1996, that was, uh, you know, Fidel Castro supported and trade those uh, uh, subversives, armed subversives, trying to overthrow the government by force. The reason they lost was that it's contrary, it's inconsistent with the uh, prevailing culture of Guatemala's indigenous population. And so people don't know that. These are entrepreneurial people. They've never been given a chance. And if with a good organization, these people would flourish. And that's what the totalitarians want to prevent. And unfortunately, the U.S. State Department is leading the effort. Without the U.S. State Department in the lead, there is no way that 
that the totalitarians would have have anywhere near the power that they have today. Yeah, Steve, you touched on many important points there. And let's explore this Fidel Castro story because it's so crucial to understanding Latin America's history. And one, one point you made, which is an important one, is the way that there is this perception that the guerrillas aligned with Fidel Castro were somehow these Robin Hood supporters of the poor. That is a lie. And in fact, if you look at not only Guatemala, but Nicaragua, Peru, Bolivia, when the indigenous people did not want to participate, uh, the guerrillas showed their true face and they would crush dissent. So why is this period, this, you call it domestic or internal conflict, so crucial to understanding what is going on in Guatemala and Central America today? When the... uh... The communist insurgency began. They simply assumed that the tremendously uh, uh, deprived material conditions in which the average Guatemalan, especially the indigenous person lives, would make those people natural allies of the communists. You're poor. This is, I mean, we can see this in the United States today. You're poor. You're a victim because this victim this, this oppressor class is keeping you down. So they thought that that line would sell really well, but it didn't because the indigenous people have individualistic culture, they're entrepreneurial, and most people don't understand that. But I was lucky enough uh, to have some people that I knew that opened the door to me to understand uh, that culture. And, and so I knew that the guerrillas were not going to succeed. They didn't know it. As a matter of fact, the Guatemalan army in the beginning made the, the same false assumption. They thought, oh man, these guerrillas are going to join. Uh, I mean, the people are going to join the guerrillas because, you know, they're in such bad shape. But actually, that's not true. And the army figured that out. And the army started to support them and give them uh, material support, uh, organization, rifles, things like that. They called them the civilian defense patrols. And those were grew to maybe a million, almost a million uh, members. And they were, the army supported that, but it was the indigenous population that, that comprised those, those civilian defense patrols. And they were the reason that the guerrillas could not overthrow the government by force. So failing that, and remember 1990, you know, two years after the Soviet Union imploded, that uh, the Sao Paulo Forum was begun uh, by Fidel Castro and Ignacio uh, Silva de Lula, in, in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's called the Sao Paulo Forum. And they had to adjust their strategy. They could no longer promote armed subversion because it didn't work. And it also alienated the, the wealthy class. So they, they decided to penetrate the government from within. And they're very corrupt that they steal money. So <laughs> that gave them something in common with the mercantilists. And uh, they were able to uh, recruit some mercantilists to, to their side, especially once they had the United States State Department with them, because people find it very hard to believe that the United States State Department is, is actually trying to promote totalitarianism in Latin America. And, and so they've been successful in, in a lot of places, but in Guatemala, they're not successful because the people still don't want it. Guatemalans, if you have free elections, will always reject uh, collectivism. They don't want it. They want development. They want security and they want opportunity. 
Uh, that's what every candidate runs on every four years or in the past five years uh, uh, in their elections. And of course, nobody delivers it because they don't understand how to do it. And some of them don't care anyway. But the potential in Guatemala is absolutely huge. And if you understand uh, the armed conflict and the culture of the indigenous people, then you understand why it's so urgent for Guatemala's uh, wealthy elite and their middle class to join with the masses and create rule of law, create decentralization, and have a more efficient, a limited government. Guatemala will explode economically. It would be uh, a model for other countries. And it would also remind the United States what made the United States great, because in the United States, we're losing that. And so the potential is there, and the totalitarians want to snuff that potential out. And I want to bring that potential to people's minds so that they know what could happen if it's done right. Yeah, there's so much to say also about that, Steve. So the problem with Fidel Castro is that not only did he want to turn Cuba into a communist disaster, he wanted to spread this all across Latin America. Yeah, he created the America Department for that precise purpose. And, and Cuba runs Venezuela. They helped Chavez get the power. They're involved in Peru today. They were involved in that election a few months ago, uh, which the State Department was on the same side as the Cubans. And uh, they've, been, they've been involved almost in every country. They were involved in attacking Chile with that attack on the subway system. Uh, they're in Argentina. They're in, in, in Colombia. Colombia's got huge problems right now. Of course, they control Nicaragua without... Without Cuba, Ortega wouldn't be in power right now. And of course, the State Department supported him in 2006 when he was running for president and <laughs> got elected in 2007. So Cuba has its hands every place. And the reason is their model is a failed model. And they produce nothing because that tyrannical society completely destroys all possibilities of production. They live off of donations from others, and they've had a series of donors throughout the years. And, and that's why they turned to the United States in 2016. Obama would have done what he did before, except that now is his last year. Uh, the political cost wasn't that high. And he threw a lifeline to Castro by uh, letting Americans uh, uh, travel to Cuba and by letting them use their credit cards in Cuba that produced hard currency. The embargo is not that big a deal. I mean, Cuba can buy uh, uh, materials, goods from Canada, from Mexico. That's not the problem. The problem is they have no money to buy anything with. And, and so Obama helped them, which is totally consistent with everything Obama does. And it's totally consistent with what's happening in the United States today, uh, because Obama is probably the main guy behind what Biden is doing without having to take responsibility for doing it. And so uh, the, the tentacles of Cuba, I mean, Fidel Castro must be uh, laughing in his grave at the United States uh, when he sees all the conflict, when he sees Black Lives Matter, uh, which is a, a communist organization that praised Fidel Castro and held him up as a model. And so this is proceeding on. And the point is that we have a model now, where have the model occurred? Chile was a good example, and they took it down. Guatemala, they're making sure that Guatemala doesn't uh, develop. They're playing all kinds of games, and they're hooked in with the State Department. And this is, this is disgraceful. And so Cuba 
is the, a huge element in Latin America. And with all those uh, the demonstrations that began on July 11th in Cuba, spontaneous demonstrations throughout much of the country, if that were to succeed and the Cuban model was, was uh, disappear, that would be a boon to Latin America because then you wouldn't have a country leading the charge to keep all these countries off balance and prevent any type of competitive model from existing. And the place that right now is most likely to produce the model that could disprove and, and totally counterbalance the Cuban model is in Guatemala. It's quite possible, and I hope it's going to happen. Yeah, the, the Cuban system, you could say yeah, the, the Fidelista or the, the communist regime is a parasitic one. In initially, of course, it lived off Soviet support. In more recent times, off Venezuelan support. And I guess now they're in a bit of a desperate situation. And so one of the questions people might have, and this is, this is why people often get confused when they read the impunities ever, they think, aren't the Americans the capitalists? What's going on, right? So we have this scenario where you have, let's say, pro-liberty institutions or political parties or whatever finding themselves, let's say even, even the Foundation Against Terrorism, right, Fundación Contra Terrorismo in Guatemala, finding themselves in the crosshairs of the U.S. State Department and Embassy and Skippy Fernandez, one of your legislators there, and these are the most pro-American people you would think in terms of American values. Why is it that they're the ones who are being targeted by U.S. government agencies? Well, because they tell the truth, Fernando Linares, who you just mentioned, uh, was instrumental in keeping the State Department from changing Guatemala's constitution to assure continued socialist control. It was very, very important. He had some good backing from Guatemala Mortal and the Liga Pro Patria and other uh, civic organizations. And, and that was a, a key thing, that, that they managed to defeat those constitutional reforms pushed by former U.S. Ambassador Todd Robinson, somebody who I believe, according to what I've consulted in Washington, should be investigated and prosecuted in the United States for the crimes he committed in Guatemala while he was U.S. Ambassador. And if the United States applied its own laws, something like that might happen. But the way it is today, that's an impossibility because uh, they don't apply the laws to anybody who is on their side. It totally selective political persecution. There's no more uh, 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 general application of law. This is what I saw the Obama administration do from 2010, right straight through to its end. And the State Department continued it under Trump. And now the State Department is in full bloom, leading the totalitarian charge against Guatemala because Biden is now president. And so the Obama people are back in power and the State Department is very happy. So it's now executing U.S. policy. When Trump was president, it was executing its own policy in betrayal of the people of the United States and its constitution because the president is supposed to be in charge of foreign policy. But the State Department doesn't see it that way. We have an out of control federal bureaucracy in the United States. And that's one of our biggest problems that we have there. Yeah, that's one of the challenges, whether to call it a deep state or not, it doesn't really matter what you call it. The fact is that there are people in the US federal government who basically see the will of the people as, as, an, as their enemy. They don't want to 
uh, reflect American values. So the, one of the key themes that we address at the Impunity Observer is the way that there was a public peace accord in 1996, a little bit similar to what happened in Colombia more recently, I think it was 2016. But of course, people don't just, oh, let's just go home and just give up on our, our goals. These, these people are intensely motivated and they want power over the country. And so since 1996, these outright terrorists or guerrillas formed political entities, nonprofits, parties, they, be, they entered the legal system. And the scary thing is that these vicious socialists or Marxists are aligned now with US officials, right? And this is the and, and they get away with it because it just flies under the radar. No, no one really does the work covering it. That's, that's the whole point of why the impunity observer is seeking to lift the veil on this activity. That's exactly correct, Fergus. You mentioned Colombia. Of course, an impunity observer, we've covered Colombia from time to time. We don't uh, focus on it like we do on Guatemala, but we do cover it because it's important. And you mentioned the peace accords. Well, there are some similarities. In, in Colombia, uh, the uh, government of Santos held a, a popular referendum asking the public to approve the peace accords and the public turned it down. And Santos, was, was he betrayed liberty. He, he was a, a minister of defense of uh, Uribe. He betrayed all the principles that Uribe stood for. And, and Santos uh, used all the advantages of the levers of power to uh, win that vote, and yet he lost it. The Colombian people rejected it. So Santos went to the Congress and, and had this pass through the Congress. Now, in, in, in democratic countries, the highest level is the people. What the people as a whole vote has much more meaning than anything that the legislature might pass and the president might sign. And so it was an exercise, it was anti-democratic exercise for Santos to go around the, the, the Colombian people and go directly to their Congress. That was an absurdity and it was an insult, but he did it and he did it with the support of the United States. The United States didn't say to him, no, you can't do that. That's not acceptable. You like Trump did with, uh, with, with Venezuela, he said their constituent assembly was an illegal uh, uh, assembly. And no, in, in Colombia, they accepted it. And in Guatemala, well, okay, it had the participation of everybody. The peace accords and the United Nations was there. The United States was in favor. The guerrillas were in favor. The country was in favor. The army was in favor. They all agreed on let's stop the killing. Well, what most people didn't know only some knew, and they said it at the time, and more people have realized it since, is that the guerrilla, the only reason that the communist subversives signed those peace accords was they had failed to overthrow the government by force of arms, and they wanted to continue their effort to take over Guatemala and impose a totalitarian government by infiltrating its government, subversion from inside. And that's what they started to do. And one of the first things they did three years later, I mean, their peace, their, their peace uh, agreement was actually voted down by the Guatemalan people 
in a boat a few years later. But then uh, Rigoberta Menchu, uh, supposedly, you know, she is a Nobel uh, Peace Prize uh, laureate, but former guerrilla, very well known. And, 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 and she started the claim of genocide. Now, there was no genocide. And that's come back now. Last week in Guatemala, uh, the uh, totalitarians with the leadership of the United States brought it back. And genocide could not have occurred because the accusation is that Guatemalans were trying to eliminate the Ixil uh, indigenous people. Now, that's an absurdity because they served in the armed forces and they served in the civilian defense patrols. So therefore, there could not have been an intention to eliminate the exils as a people. Therefore, genocide, by definition, simply didn't occur. But the United States wants everybody to believe that there was genocide. And of course, the former subversives, the uh, successors to the, to the guerrilla, want to pretend that genocide existed. This is part of their ongoing effort to destroy Guatemalan society and Guatemalan society needs to come together. Of course, you know, we wrote about that uh, a week ago in the Impunity Observer. And uh, I hope that people go uh, on the site if they're interested in knowing about it and, and read about it. And we will continue to cover this because it's an outrage. Yeah, and what happened in Colombia under Juan Manuel Santos was a shameful thing. As you said, there was a clear rejection of any kind of deal with these terrorists the FARC, and yet the elitists, the globalists, John Kerry and all these guys who went down to Colombia were just so determined to have some deal, they just, over, they just ran over the Colombian people. And to see the Colombian government giving basically handouts, freebies and pol automatic political power to these terrorists was just absurd to me. They deserved only punishment. So now you're, you're do you want to just explain then what is the content you're producing these days? So we plan, to have, we plan to make this podcast monthly and we'll have either Steve or a guest on to discuss the, uh, related topics. Now you write about three to four commentaries per month. We have a backgrounder or a, a memo, which is just a, a facts uh, overview. And then you see, you start commentaries. We have a, a, a memo and an investigation. What do you foresee in terms of the topics coming up that you'll be covering, Steve? Well, I'm, I'm interested, as you know, we're working on, uh, we did an investigative report. I forget what it stands for, CNE. It's a, a private sector organization that's basically a shell that was uh, uh, made in conjunction with uh, Harris and the State Department to try to pretend that they're working with Guatemala's private sector. Uh, we did an investigative report on that. And, and found some very interesting things. And, you know, in Guatemala, you don't really have, uh, the, the, the local media is not any better than US media in terms of covering important things. As a matter of fact, as an aside, where you asked the question of why I got involved in the Impunity Observer, uh, there was a case before we started the Impunity Observer in Guatemala, Zepra Zarco, uh, against a former uh, second lieutenant in the Guatemalan army, and they claimed, among a lot of other things, that he had raped uh, 11 women, or 15, it started out as. And they, they never identified any of the people who actually did it. They never accused the, the second lieutenant, who retired as a colonel, 
of having done that. The so-called events happened in 1983 and the trial occurred in 2014. And I think it was 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. And the, uh, the person accused was supposedly in charge of these people. Well, I was talking with a, a friend at, at one point and explaining this case. And I told her the, the, the accusation of rape was that during six months, actually it was six years, but the trial part covered six months, that, that these women were repeatedly raped for six months. What she didn't know, and I told her was, that these women went home every night and came back the next day to get raped again. And my friend was incredulous. And she said to me, that's impossible. That can't be. How come we don't know about this? She's a Guatemalan woman. And, and she's telling me, why don't we know? Why don't you put up a media uh, outlet so that you can inform people? Well, you know, I had that in mind when we started the Impunity Observer, and I realized that people don't get uh, the information they need. And one of the things that I look forward to doing that, you know, I, I, I rely on you and your team to do that, is uh, we need investigative reporting. And I'm hoping to do some investigative reports, uh, for instance, on uh, what happened regarding the uh, election of Gloria Porras by uh, San Carlos University to the to the Constitutional Court. Uh, you know, we covered that uh, quite a bit. I did in my own personal writings, and I believe that uh, uh, people should know that in Guatemala you don't get that type of information. And I'm looking forward to us being able to provide some insights into important events in Guatemala. Yeah, in terms of the internal conflict, as you said, there's been a misrepresentation of what happened and the as though there were some peasants rising up against this evil regime. And the fact is that the Guatemalan government had to fight against a communist invasion or insurrection funded by the Soviets and Cubans. So it was a very difficult challenge and it wasn't as though they could just play gently and win that uh, battle. So in terms of the media coverage, would you want to say something there? Go ahead, man. Yeah, I was going to say that, that what you just said is exactly true. Most people don't know the extent to which the guerrillas committed horrific crimes against Guatemalan people, including indigenous people. And those have been buried. That, that uh, historical clarification commission was, was a setup. The guerrillas knew perfectly well that they controlled the United Nations. And the people that came to do that were all of the same ideology. And they attributed 93% of the crimes to the army and 7% to the guerrillas. Well, they would have said zero, but they knew perfectly well that nobody was going to believe them if they said zero. So they put in the 7%. But the crimes that the guerrillas committed against the indigenous people, those crimes tell you right then and there that the indigenous people were not spontaneously rising up against the repressive government. Quite the contrary. They actually fought the guerrillas. And those crimes actually helped people, uh, the indigenous people, uh, uh, realize that they needed the civilian defense patrols. And it, it was one of the factors in the creation of the civilian defense patrols. The indigenous people were protecting themselves from the communist insurgents. and. That's a, a fact that's hardly known because the propaganda machine that the international socialists have 
is significant and includes major organizations in the United States, like the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and a whole myriad of, uh, of, of NGOs, you know, non-governmental organizations. And, and, and they have inundated uh, the, the airwaves and print with these stories that while they have some truth to them, are totally exaggerated and for the most part, completely ignore what happened in, in the armed conflict. And that historical clarification report that, that we're talking about, that found acts of genocide. Now you can find people that claim that the Historical Clarification Commission found that genocide had been committed in Guatemala. That's not true. If you read their report, it says acts of genocide. Well, what does that mean? Any murder is an act of genocide. Even attempted murder is an act of genocide. But to be genocide, it must include the intention to eliminate that group, whatever that person, uh, uh, that, a group that that person, the victim of the attempted or the actual murder, had to have been an intention to eliminate whatever group that that person pertained to. And, and in no way, shape or form did that happen in Guatemala. But yet the people who comprise the Historical Clarification Committee put that in about acts of genocide so that their comrades could then claim that, that, that they had found genocide. Well, had they actually said genocide, they would have been in trouble because they knew perfectly well they couldn't do that. So they're extremely sneaky. And they, they started this, this whole idea of genocide without actually saying it. And then they let their other organizations and these people, you know, you and I write, you write in your other uh, uh, outlets and you write the impunity observer and I write the impunity observer and I write for outlets in the United States. We have to do strict standards. We can't say anything that we can't substantiate. And if we're wrong, we have a problem and we get called on it. Well, that's because that's our world. We believe in principles, but these the, the international socialists lie every single day. They never get held to account for their lies. The biggest one in, in recent memory is the Russia collusion hoax against Trump. I mean, it was completely debunked and it never happened and it was illogical to begin with, but yet they pounded on it. And when it got proven because Mueller could not find anything, when that happened, Nobody apologized. Nobody on the left apologized. And there are people today that still say Trump was a puppet of Putin. I mean, they don't care anything at all about facts, about evidence, about reality. Whatever they say is truth is truth by definition has nothing to do with reality, with verifiable facts. But we, on the other hand, have to live in the world of verifiable facts. I'm not upset about it. I'm upset that they do what they do. I think it's the right way to try to substantiate what you have to say. And it's very important to do. And we hope that truth prevails over lies. Yeah. And you mentioned there that the media in Guatemala is just as bad as the American media. I want to go further and say that it's worse. If you research Central America, you almost inevitably come up with progressive media which is almost the only media that exists in Central America, and academics from the United States who obviously are extremely socialist or progressive in inclination. And the Impunity Observer, that's why it's, it stands out as so different because people don't realize that they've been getting such a one-sided view for so long. 
that's Fergus. You're absolutely right. You know, look, I was born in New York and I lived reading the New York Times and I kept reading the New York Times despite it's, it's totally biased reporting during Guatemala's armed conflict. I mean, I was there. I arrived in Guatemala at the end of 1972, and the war got, got hot around 79, uh, 80, after the Sandinistas took over Nicaragua. And, and they had a reporter named Alan Riding, and his reporting was disgusting and disgraceful. What I didn't realize is that this was something at that time, that this was something that went to the founding of the New York Times. And I wrote about it recently someplace. And I said, you know, the New York Times during the uh, 30s was a shill for Joseph Stalin. I mean, they had a guy named Walter Durante, a reporter, and he got Pulitzer Prizes, I believe it was. And, 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 and this guy was a shill for Joseph Stalin. And the New York Times has been doing that to say they did the same thing for Fidel Castro. They did the same thing in, in Guatemala because I know things that happen and I read their coverage. I stopped reading the New York Times, I guess, the, uh, around, oh, maybe maybe 2000 or so, 1999, somewhere there. I just said, no, I, I don't want to see this anymore. And now they're the founder of the 1619 Project. And, and that holds that the United States was built on slavery and that it's such an integral part of the United States that the only remedy is to tear it down and start again. Well, that's exactly what Marxists want to do. That's a totalitarian formula, and that's an absurdity. And if you take Martin Luther King, who said that that he was in 1963 in his Lincoln Memorial speech, he was there to cash an IOU called the Declaration of Independence from the Constitution of the United States. All men are created equal. That's our aspiration. Let's meet that aspiration. He loved the Constitution. He was using the Constitution to promote equality. That's what it was written for, and that's the way we have to go. But the New York Times, they want to tear it down. They don't care about the Constitution. And, and, and when, when their government comes, they're going to have to print only what the government allows them to print. And they're completely mistaken that they're still going to be in charge of their own situation. And that's the problem with most of the people today who, who are supporting uh, this totalitarian movement that's, been, uh, that's being led at the moment, or at least on the surface, by the Democrat Party. We don't know really who's manipulating it behind the scenes, and certainly not Joe Biden. So, uh, yes, the New York Times, really, you can't find anything more dishonest and more disgraceful than the New York Times. So it might not be worse in Guatemala, but it's certainly less competent in Guatemala. Right. So if you want to get out of the New York Times bubble or the progressive media bubble and really understand Central America, go to impunityobserver.com and we'll have the podcast either on the YouTube channel. So be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And with the show notes at impunityobserver.com forward slash podcast. You can also follow Steve on Twitter. He's active. And he also writes often for the BizPack Review and for the Epoch Times. So we'll share articles and his appearances elsewhere over Twitter, which aren't immediately on the website because he's, he's an active guy. If you want to... Uh, get in touch with us. It's just contact at impunityobserver.com. If you want to share topics or news tips, we'll look into them. Otherwise, Steve, again, it's my honor to work with you. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased we are addressing these issues and I look forward to next time. Well, thank you very much, Fergus. It's an honor to work with you and a pleasure and look forward to the next one.